Welcome to Veterans Radio Hour on VBN, Veterans Broadcast Network. With host Ranger Doug. Here's Ranger Doug. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to our 32nd program on Veterans Radio Hour 2.0. This is our 17th program in this series, Russia Moves into Ukraine. Tonight, we'll be talking about the current status of the war and what we see in the future, some other issues as well. I'm joined again by people we've heard before, Dr. Brian Downing, Dr. David Johnson, and Mr. Dean Chang. And now for a short introduction of each gentleman, Brian Please give a short biographical statement. Thank you, sir. Over to you. Brian Downing here, uh, three years in the Army long ago, one year in Vietnam with South Vietnamese paramilitary forces. After that, uh, Georgetown University of Chicago and Harvard, taught college for a while and became sort of an independent analyst after that. Works best for me. Back to you. Great. And last week you told us you'd spent that year in Vietnam with the regional forces, popular forces, or rough puff. And that was a that was a heck of a, a revelation. Good for you. They were called People Self Defense Forces, is what they were actually called. That was a, a notch below Rough Puffs, mm-hmm. and many of them were about forty years old, and they had been in the French Army fighting the Viet Minh. Great, thank you, Doctor David. Over to you, sir. Yeah, uh, Dave Johnson. I'm a retired Army Colonel. Uh, served uh, from 1972 to 1997. Last one was 50 years since I joined the Army. Spent usual tours as infantry quartermaster field artillery officer, most normal Cold War tours in Korea, Germany, and different states that post. And I was fortunate enough to command a battalion in Hawaii in the 25th Infantry Division. I went to grad school when I was in the Army. Uh, I'm fortunate enough to get a PhD in history, military history at Duke, and write about military innovation. The book I wrote was called Fast Tanks and Heavy Bombers. I retired, spent about a year and a half in industry, then I went uh, to work at RAND, where I've been for since 1998, uh, studying joint operations strategy and a variety of other things like force structure and, and doctrine. Um, I'm also an adjunct scholar at the Modern War Institute at West Point. Back to you, Ranger Doug. Thank you, Dr. Dave. Dean, over to you. Hi, I'm Dean Cheng. I'm the Senior Research Fellow for Chinese Political and Security Affairs at the Heritage Foundation. Uh, Before that, I was with the Center for Naval Analysis, uh, SAIC Corporation, and the U.S. Congress's Office of Technology Assessment, a government agency that is distinguished by the fact that it no longer exists. Along the way, I uh, wrote a book called Cyber Dragon, which looks at how the Chinese uh, have written about uh, and are thinking about uh, information operations and information warfare. Back to you. Thank you, Dean. Well, then now here we are this week. Where do we think uh, Ukraine and Russia are today in the war? And that will be led by Brian. Well, most of the fighting is in the east, in the Donbass pocket. That is a uh, salient extending east. It's about 100 kilometers deep and about 35 kilometers wide at its narrowest point. The fighting is mostly heavy artillery and infantry, grinding warfare along most of the pocket, but it's concentrated presently at Severodonetsk. We've heard about that in the news a good deal in the last two weeks. Uh, Fighting's going back and forth. Ukraine is giving up ground very slowly. The Russian casualties are probably very, very high. 
the Ukrainians are staying very close to the Russian positions in order to minimize their use of artillery. Uh, the Ukrainians are holding their own around the rest of the pocket. I believe they are fighting the defense in depth. They'll give up ground a few kilometers here, but they'll make the Russians pay for it. Uh, Ukraine is making counterattacks in the northwest of the pocket around Izium, and that could present problems for Russia in the coming uh, week or so. Russian logistics are a little better in the east because there are a lot of railroad lines in that industrial and coal mining area. Russian electronic warfare has improved. That means that Ukrainian attack and recon drones are not as effective as they were around Kyiv and elsewhere. Uh, they did capture, the Ukrainians did capture a Krasuka electronic warfare system a few weeks ago. And I'll bet the, that's, that system is in the United States right now and being dissected and looking for ways to countermeasure for countering it. Uh, the Ukrainian artillery, we've all heard, is much smaller than the force the Russians are putting forth. And it's essential for more to come. Shifting down to the land bridge, that area running from the Crimean Peninsula east to Russian territory, Ukrainian forces are moving on Kherson, west of the Crimea. They hope to isolate it, boost guerrilla warfare there, and drive the Russians east of the Dnipro River. Keeping and expanding the land bridge might be more important to Russia than incremental gains in the east. Back to you, Ranger Doug. Thank you very much. Then, Dr. Dave, sir, over to you. Yeah, I mean, as, as usual, Brian gave a, a great lay down of what's going on. Um, one thing I think is also important is uh, the Russians have blown all the bridges to Severodonetsk. The civilians are, and whatever military forces are trapped there now. Um, and it's the casualty rates, I think, are the first time I've really heard something authoritative about Ukrainian casualties was Zelensky himself said we're losing between 100 and 200 soldiers per day and potentially as much as 500 wounded a day. So in a battle of attrition, I think they're not that unequally manned opposing each other, uh, which killing the Ukrainians literally is artillery fire. The reports from uh, individuals at aid stations that it's just a constant rain of artillery day and night. Uh, and it's just, it's taking a toll. Uh, I think one of the things that really needs to be understood that most people don't, I don't think, is why is it so crucial for us to get Ukrainians, our artillery pieces and ammunition? Um, almost all the things that were in the Ukrainian military are from when they were Warsaw Pact country. And so it all fires Russian ammunition, which is a different caliber than NATO ammunition. And the Russians are obviously not going to be selling them 152 millimeter artillery shells on, you know, to fulfill any orders they have. So they've got to get the ammunition from somewhere else. And at NATO, the standard is 155 millimeter. Therefore, they have to have 155 millimeter howitzers. But I think we're in this, unfortunately, the same place we've been. A grinding war of attrition with a, you know, incremental Russian gains, uh, and no ability by the Ukrainians really to do something major. Back to you, Ranger Doug. Thank you, Doctor Dave and Dean. Over to you then. 
Well, I really don't have too much to add directly to the excellent encapsulations by both Brian and Dr. Dave. Uh, The one thing I will note here is as this war goes on, uh, once again, we are seeing the reality of the old adage, amateurs talk tactics, experts talk logistics. Um, Both sides are grinding through a lot of of ammunition, a lot of weapons, the Ukrainians have indicated that um, they are potentially running out of uh, ammunition. Again, this goes to the differences in caliber. Um, it also goes, uh, interestingly, to issues of rail gauges. Uh, Ukraine, of course, was part of the Soviet Union, and therefore its rail gauge is on the wider Soviet slash Russian rail gauge, which means that you can't just run things from Western Europe and even Central Europe straight into Ukraine. Um, you're going to have to offload and transfer over to wider gauge rail cars, uh, locomotives, and the like. Uh, that takes time. That's also a huge point of vulnerability. And one of the things that the Russians, uh, or more specifically, I guess Mr. Putin, has been threatening is that I am going to start targeting at some point your munitions. The Russians have claimed that they have hit uh, some depots where uh, Western weapons uh, had were being offloaded and, and being readied for transfer to the Ukrainians. So um, any place where you have to literally offload rail cars or transfer them over uh, is going to be probably a very high priority target for the day when the Russians do decide that they need to turn off the spigot of Western aid going to the Ukrainians. Back to you, Ranger. Thanks, Dean. I would just like to follow up with you in the sense that uh, do we have any idea that China has begun to support Russia with uh, logistical support, uh, either covertly or overtly? Uh, At this point in time, there's no indication, certainly, that the Chinese are supplying the Russians with weapons. I think that's a very important point. Um, The farther you get from actual lethal systems, however, the less clear it is. So, for example, um, spare parts. Uh, At some point, you're talking about tires, you're talking about uh, car batteries. Are the Chinese providing that? Uh, there have been a number of reports, uh, intriguing ones. Actually, it's fascinating what you can find on the internet these days, um, about uh, Russian trucks operating with Chinese military tires. And it turns out that those tires often were either ill-maintained or were substandard in terms of quality. Uh, so they've been shredding on Ukrainian roads and more importantly, on Ukrainian tracks and in the mud. Um, when did the Chinese supply those tires? It's not clear. Uh, What China is doing very clearly is continuing to do business with Russia and therefore is providing Russia with the single most important resource, money. Um, At the end of the day, uh, armies, air forces, navies run on money. Um, Somebody has to pay someone to make weapons, spare parts, fuel, uh, to keep roads going, to keep trains running. And there, the Chinese have made very clear they are not about to turn their backs on their Russian friends. Uh, And uh, in that regard, um, there is a steady flow of Russian oil to China and presumably a steady flow of uh, money, uh, certainly in electronic form, uh, back to Russia. Back to you. Thank you for providing that perspective, Dean. Appreciate it very much. Okay, so let's take a look and see whether the war aims have changed at all. And this time, I'll turn to... Dr. Dave. Dave, over to you. I think they're fairly consistent with what we've been talking about the last few weeks. It's whatever Putin wants to be for Russia. 
and he hadn't really stated explicitly what that is yet. We talked about how Zelensky in some ways is kind of painted himself into a corner because, you know, the announcements of they're not going to give up territory, the political reality that they've taken horrible casualties and suffered atrocities at the hands of the Russians uh, makes any kind of bargain at this point really problematic. One thing that's fortunate for the Ukrainians is that the leaders of France, Germany, and Italy all visited and showed their support, which is a, a pretty big deal. It's the first time they've all been there. And I think the Russian you know, Medvedev, who used to be the you know the leader in Russia, said essentially the Troika is a bunch of connoisseurs of frogs, liver worse than pasta, so they're not really worth paying attention to. Uh, the Ukrainians are paying attention to it. Uh, they offered them a, a future path into the EU, which will be obviously long and tortured because of the requirements. But there's still some solidarity that's, that's manifesting itself, which probably will either likely result in uh, Zelensky, you know, doubling down for a while. Back over to you, Ranger Doug. Thank you, Dave. And Dean, over to you. Again, I don't disagree. I think that the Russians and Ukrainians continue to have pretty much the same war aims that they've had for a while. Uh, The Ukrainians clearly are trying to survive. The idea that eventually they may be able to join the EU is is presumably heartening, but that is in the longer term. Interestingly, the Ukrainians have been approaching a number of other states, including the Republic of Korea, South Korea, to try and get aid, whether it's financial aid, humanitarian assistance, or uh, access to military supplies. Uh, South Koreans are treading very carefully on that. Uh, They have their own issues, obviously, in terms of national security. I do think that it's interesting that amidst all this, there really doesn't seem to be any behind-the-scenes negotiations going on. It does seem like the Ukrainians are still committed to the fight, regardless of the casualty rates that they are suffering. And, of course, in Russia, uh, which becomes more authoritarian by the week, um, we don't have much insight into any kind of uh, dissent or, or anti-war movement other than periodic reports of protests. But I do think it's interesting that Navalny, uh, one of the key opposition figures, it has been transferred to a prison uh, renowned apparently for its viciousness, which does suggest that he may not come out of that prison, but more to the point that Mr. Putin is trying to seal off any obvious sources of dissent from his rule. Back to you. Thank you, Dean. Uh, Dr. Bryan, sir, over to you. Well, I think Putin wants to continue grinding down and hoping to break the Ukrainian army in the east along that salient I mentioned. If they can do that, then they can drive west from that and perhaps expand expand west along the land bridge to Odessa and then link up in the Transnistria region. That would enable them to isolate Ukraine and swallow it up and annex it. Zelensky wants to hold as much territory in the east as possible, but fight a defense in in depth there, make the Russians pay for every kilometer. It's his hope that uh, he can wear down Russian forces rather than the other way around, and then he will be in a position to launch an offensive along the land bridge from the west and the south. I'm sorry, from the west and the north. Back to you, Ranger Doug. Thank you very much. And that was a great round. We need to pause now for a commercial, and we'll be back in just a moment. This is Veterans Radio Hour 2.0. I'm Ranger Doug. I'm here tonight with our three great guests, Dean Cheng, 
Dr. Brian Downing, Dr. David Johnson. We'll be back in a few moments. Thank you. You're listening to Veterans Radio Hour. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Attention. Looking for semi-drivers nationwide. GTS Transportation of Burr Ridge, Illinois, is looking to hire a partner with experienced CDL holders in every state. If you are going to drive, why not drive for the best? Whether you are driving solo, as a team, or as an owner-operator, GTS is looking to add you to their rapidly growing company. Become part of one of the most respected, driver-friendly, and successful transportation companies in America, where drivers are treated as royalty. Contact us at gtscarrier.com. Again, gtscarrier.com. Or call us at 847-754-4667. That number again, 847-754-4667. We would love to help you, which in turn helps everyone. GTS is an equal opportunity employer. Dallas Corporation and Dallas Logistics, a proud supporter of the Veterans Broadcast Network for over 19 years. High-quality printing services and warehouse distribution has been our hallmark since 1985, serving Fortune 100 companies for over 35 years. Check us out at www.dallascorp.com. Attention, all U.S. veterans. You have served this country with honor and pride. So why is it so difficult to receive the benefits you deserve? Filing a VA claim is complicated, it's cumbersome, and time-consuming. Many veterans have a problem identifying what conditions they should apply for. VDAC, Veterans Disability Application Caddy, is an online application that greatly assists you with filling out your application and identifying the disabilities that you're entitled to. The VDAC process takes about 15 to 30 minutes from start to finish. The entire process is simple and easy to use. The software automatically cross-references the VA database to determine what presumptive conditions you are entitled to as well as any secondary conditions. Once done, a fully completed VA form is generated with supporting material. To find out more, go to nifv.org and click on the VDAC button. Again, the website is nifv.org and click on VDAC. Welcome back to Veterans Radio Hour. And here's Ranger Doug. And welcome back from that commercial. This is Veterans Radio Hour 2.0. This is our 17th program in the series, Russia Moves into Ukraine. Tonight, I'm joined by Dr. David Johnson, Dr. Brian Downing, and Mr. Dean Chang. Would any of you care to comment on the fact that Russia may not have or may have an objective of eventually pushing beyond Donbass, the land bridge, Crimea? Or does it appear that really now we're in a struggle for them to secure the lands that they originally had occupied with some elements uh, back in 2014 or so? Over to you for any comment. I'll make one quick one here. That we really don't know what Putin's long-term aims are. He stated them, you know, the Peter the Great analogies and all the other things. But, you know, when this culminates in the Donbass uh, and Putin was suppose that he controls the area that he's fighting in right now and says, you know, we're going to have an armistice, whatever. I don't know whatever agreement could possibly be. But I don't think that's a, an end state. I think it's a lull. And it will probably, if that happens, look like you know, North and South Korea. Uh, and I think he's not going to just sit there and say, this is enough. So, you know, the danger may, it may be a phony war for a while. 
but you know the the lowlands are still waiting there at Sedan for the you know the, for the conquest. Back to you, Rancher Doug. Thank you, Dave. And Dean, over to you. So I, I'll throw in a couple of pennies worth of thoughts. Uh, one is there have been some indications is probably the best word for it that there's been some sort of ongoing fighting uh up in the north near kharkiv uh perhaps near kiev itself um so it's a reminder that while all of our eyes are mostly focused in the east and for good reason that the war does extend to other fronts as well and therefore um there may be uh in the midterm especially if and when the Donbass area, uh, you know, sort of slugfest ends, um, there are other parts of the front that will be renewed. You don't hear much, for example, right now about what might be going on near Odessa or in the Black Sea. Um, it may be a quiet sector of the front. It may be that there's other things going on that just haven't gotten as much attention. The other thing is that, you know, the analogy with North and South Korea breaks down a little bit because one, the U.S. was allied, formally allied, and still is, with South Korea. And so we provided a direct uh, amount of security guarantees, military forces, uh, nuclear deterrence, etc., to South Korea. Um, and that meant that the armistice, once it was signed in 1953, pretty much meant an end to hostilities. And even then, you had some ugly uh, North Korean infiltration uh a near guerrilla war uh, in the 1968-71 period. Uh, no one is thinking of Ukraine joining NATO, which means that there's nothing really to prevent Mr. Putin from openly invading, not just like pinpricks and guerrillas and things, but openly reinvading Ukraine a year, two years, five years after any kind of armistice was signed. Um, and it's hard to imagine that, it, you know, the U.S., Britain or France are going to extend a nuclear guarantee to Ukraine and yet not let it into NATO. So I think that however this might temporarily go into a lull, um, it's quite likely to go back to being very ugly and in ugly in new ways um, that defy analogies to uh, Korea, to Arab-Israeli conflicts, etc., Back to you. Yeah, let me plug in one last thing there because I think Dean's really made an important point. And that is if we recognize this armistice is tenuous and that Putin has bigger designs, um, it should be some, you know, put the West on notice that this is not over. And how are you going to, as we've promised, guarantee their sovereignty and their, you know, their ability of self-defense if they're not going to be part of NATO. So there's some big decisions coming around the corner for the, for the allies um, that I'm not sure they're really prepared to think through yet. Dean's absolutely right. The Korea analogy, the only reason I was saying that is that there's a postponement of hostilities, but what he importantly points out that guaranteed that was a security guarantee from the United States. And the question is, what are we going to do if there is a break in, you know, the fighting, knowing full well Putin's not done. Back to you, Rancher Doug. Thank you, Dr. Dave. So our question at this point then is kind of the effect that, uh, on the world at large, including the U.S., NATO, the EU, and, and the PRC, and 
obviously with the PRC being a big consideration and Dean already having given us some of his views. Dean, how about taking the lead on this question? Well, again, I think that as we watch uh, this war grind on, the secondary effects uh, from the disruption in global supply chains um, is starting to have some real major ramifications. Um, It turns out that we are now looking potentially at shortages of diesel fuel, or more specifically to DEF, which is an additive which allows uh, diesel fuel to be burned in the United States with lower particulate um, emissions and things. Uh, the extent to which uh, Russia and Ukraine are part of the DEF supply chain is an interesting one. Um, fertilizer continues to be a, uh, a commodity that is uh, going into shorter supply. Uh, Food prices are rising. There is discussion now about millions of people around the world being potentially um, uh, affected by rising food prices. Uh, Interestingly, the Russians apparently have been targeting uh, Ukrainian grain silos and uh, grain uh, storage facilities. And uh, Mr. Putin demonstrating once again that uh, chutzpah is apparently uh, well understood in the Kremlin has argued that Ukraine needs to reduce its defenses along the Black Sea coast, specifically its sea mine barrages and barriers, to allow uh, Ukrainian grain to get back on world markets. Um, And apparently he may be referring to Ukrainian grain that is currently in Russian hands. So um, all of which is to say that uh, as this war continues, secondary effects, I think, are going to start having greater and greater prominence. Um, you've, uh, you know, your listeners have heard me talk before about rising food prices and the impact on Africa, the Middle East, and South America. And I think that um, insofar it also affects transportation, fuel, energy, um, that's a double whammy that uh, is, is going to be ever more prominent. Back to you. Thank you, Dean. A great perspective. And, and just for some clarification, the DEF you mentioned is uh, diesel exhaust fuel. I've also heard of uh, what this really means. And it is a byproduct of petroleum processes, but very important to modern diesel engines. So in other words, a diesel engine of a certain vintage, fairly new in other words, has a tank uh, attached to the, to the vehicle uh, that, that contains this diesel exhaust fluid, which is mixed through a catalysis process and uh, thus results in a less poisonous emission from the diesel exhaust. The problem for the user is without the DEF in the tank being used, there's a limiter on the speed of the vehicle that reduces it to about five miles an hour. So it obviously isn't something that you can simply bypass, but uh, there is the possibility that older trucks could become uh, much more useful to, to at least individuals and possibly to certain small companies. And the other uh, aspect you mentioned of fertilizer and such, uh, they're, they're well connected to natural gas and other petroleum processes because the urea derived that doesn't come from animal waste such as chicken waste uh, is derived mostly from those process, uh, uh, processes related to petroleum. And obviously we're seeing a lot of that. And in the, in the terms of food, without the appropriate crop harvests and such having been planted in Ukraine, Russia, Belarus, there's going to be a, a wide hole in the in the world grain markets in in months to come. So thank you, Dean. Then, uh, Dr. Brian, over to you, sir. Well, with Russia preoccupied in Ukraine, we're seeing uh, interesting things happen in Syria. Israel is more aggressive in hitting Iranian and Hezbollah assets there. 
Uh, Russia used to look the other way and allow a good deal of that. But with the increase in air, Israeli airstrikes, uh, Russia is objecting very strenuously. And we'll have to see what they will do. They do keep an S-400 air defense system there for their own military bases, the naval facility at Tartus and a couple of air bases at Palmyra and um, Latakia. Furthermore, Turkey is expanding its positions inside Syria at the expense of the Kurds. And, of course, this is something that the Syrian government doesn't want to see. The Syrians have never really been at war with the Kurds, actually. Uh, it was more against rebel groups, and the Kurds kind of stayed off on the sideline with that. <clears throat> Sweden and Finland want to join NATO. Turkey is blocking that for now over their support of Kurds. And uh, Swedes are responding by showing Kurdish flags around the Turkish embassy in Stockholm. Back to you, Ranger Doug. Thank you, Brian. Dr. Dave, over to you. Yeah, so I think I just want to highlight one thing that we've all talked about. And that is the shortage of commodities, although it's going to cause inflation in some places, it, the potential for outright famine and, you know, quite simply, a, you know, a lot of unrest and political instability will, you know, the chances that just increase the longer this, these supplies are essentially embargoed from the rest of the world. So I think that what that all leads to is an amounting pressure to you know, end the war in some way, which we'll, you know, talk about when we talk about peace negotiations later. But there's a, a really harsh winter coming for millions and millions of people around the world uh, as a result of Putin's aggression. And it'll be, you know, it's really important to see how the West bears up to this and what it does to alleviate that across the globe, quite frankly. Back to you, Ranger Doug. Thank you. That was a great round. We need to pause now for a commercial, and we'll be back in just a moment. This is Veterans Radio Hour 2.0. I'm Ranger Doug. I'm here tonight with our three great guests, Dean Cheng, Dr. Brian Downing, Dr. David Johnson. We'll be back in a few moments. Thank you. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. The trucking industry was born by the military during World War I and therefore became the father of the trucking industry. Being a truck driver achieved national attention in the 1960s, when songs and movies included truck driving as a part of the storyline. If you're looking for an easy job that pays well, then GTS Transportation is looking for you. GTS Transportation is a leading transportation company with a great history. We are an international company with opportunities all around the world. Apply now by going to our website, gtscarrier.com, or call us at 847-754-4667. That number again, 847-754-4667. Apply now and become a part of truck driving history. Dallas Corporation and Dallas Logistics, a proud supporter of the Veterans Broadcast Network for over 19 years. High-quality printing services and warehouse distribution has been our hallmark since 1985, serving Fortune 100 companies for over 35 years. Check us out at www.dallascorp.com. Attention, all U.S. veterans. You have served this country with honor and pride. So why is it so difficult to receive the benefits you deserve? Filing a VA claim is complicated. It's cumbersome and time-consuming. 
Many veterans have a problem identifying what conditions they should apply for. VDAC, Veterans Disability Application Caddy, is an online application that greatly assists you with filling out your application and identifying the disabilities that you're entitled to. The VDAC process takes about 15 to 30 minutes from start to finish. The entire process is simple and easy to use. The software automatically cross-references the VA database to determine what presumptive conditions you are entitled to as well as any secondary conditions. Once done, a fully completed VA form is generated with supporting material. To find out more, go to nifv.org and click on the VDAC button. Again, the website is nifv.org and click on VDAC. Welcome back to Veterans Radio Hour. And here's Ranger Doug. And welcome back from that commercial. This is Veterans Radio Hour 2.0. This is our 17th program in the series, Russia Moves into Ukraine. So then, and let's move on to the status of any ceasefire, truce, or peace efforts. Has anyone detected anything in those areas? Any even talk of a cessation of uh, hostilities or return to negotiations? And over to you, Brian. Uh, I'm afraid not. Uh, neither side is winning. Neither side is losing. Both are waiting for the other side to exhaust itself. We could see more POW exchanges. They've already happened. A couple of American soldiers were apparently taken prisoner a few days ago, and Russian television is talking about uh, shooting them, trying them as war criminals and executing them. Similarly, there are British citizens who have been taken prisoner I think that's just a bargaining position for some sort of uh, prisoner exchange. I don't think that those dialogues would lead to anything larger about the war itself. Back to you, Andrew Doug. Thank you, Dr. Brian. I uh, then would like to turn it over to uh, Dr. Dave. Yeah, I, I don't see any movement just like Brian does. Uh, there's some bargaining chips, like you said, with the POWs. Uh, that balance is strongly in the favor of the, the Russians at the point. They have a lot more Ukrainian POWs than the Ukrainian has Russians. But I just, we're at a point where we're just grinding along, and neither side has any strong impetus to do anything to give in first uh, with a peace negotiation or an offer to ceasefire beyond perhaps humanitarian pleas to evacuate the citizens of Sveridonetsk or other places where there's really civilian suffering. But as we saw in Mariupol, Putin just kind of doesn't, let that bother him. He's already registering people. You have to get a Russian passport to work in some of the areas now that are occupied that are part of the, in the Donetsk area. So he is steadily you know, trying to convert what he's got into permanence. Uh, and it's essentially you say you're a Russian citizen or you don't eat is what it's kind of coming down to. And there's talk about deportation of children and others into Russia. The scale of that, you know, is really hard to understand at this point. But, you know, this is a a, a really nasty war. And, you know, it, it kind of makes it where talking about peace while this is going on is really difficult. Back to you, Rancher Doug. Thank you very much. Then, Dean, over to you, sir. So, a couple of things. One, uh, it's interesting to note that uh, Henry Kissinger um, and uh, Emmanuel Macron have both uh, stated essentially that, one, Ukraine should not try to humiliate uh, Vladimir Putin, and in Dr. Kissinger's case specifically, that Ukraine should be prepared to make territorial concessions. Uh, That's interesting because if this war uh, does grind on and ultimately uh, Ukraine is not going to march into Moscow, 
but the Russians are not going to be able to march into Kiev. That does raise a question about how, what, what kind of off-ramp exists. Uh, I am here reminded of uh, Woodrow Wilson's efforts um, to try and promote some kind of negotiated peace between the Allies and the Central Powers in World War I. And neither side was open to that, um, simply because both sides felt that their sacrifices could not be in vain. Uh, what that eventually led to, of course, was unrestricted submarine warfare by the Germans, which alienated the Americans, which brought the Americans into the war on the Allied side. What Mr. Putin in particular, who has demonstrated far less concern about international opinion, uh, is therefore the, the very worrisome part. Um, because if he isn't going to go for a negotiated settlement and he can't march into Kiev, what else might he do and how might that alienate any number of players um, to the point where they might choose to go further in their support to Ukrainians? Um, and uh, bring this also back to China, what would be the Chinese reaction if, for example, there were even more uh, Western aid, Western support, uh, intelligence support, uh, perhaps more direct military assistance to the Ukrainians. Um, Chinese officials regularly note that China is not, in fact, supplying military assistance, but the Americans and NATO nations are, and draw a very clear point that this is uh, inequitable um, and that Russia is, is, in a sense, being treated differently uh, than Ukraine is. And what would be, why would Chinese support for Russia in terms of actual military equipment, for example, be unjustified given the scale of American and NATO support to Ukraine? Back to you. Great observation. Thank you very much. The question now then is, what do we think we can look forward to in the coming weeks? And then any further thoughts? And that will be over to you, Dr. Dave. Well, as we've been saying in the last number of weeks, more of the same. The real question is, you know, can we keep the supply chain of artillery ammunition and other material support flowing so the Ukrainians can stay in this? Um, there's a number of reports out this week about how vastly outnumbered they are in artillery tubes and munitions. Um, the Russians are firing lots of fire missions all day and all night because they can sustain that rate of fire. So the question is, you know, what has to get there to keep them in the fight? And, you know, that's what everybody is banking on. But I just see this going like it's going. Uh, I think the Russians will probably take care of it, and that's fairly soon. And the question is, what next? And, but it's just going to be this slow, conquered by artillery, occupied with infantry fight for the Russians. Back to you, Ranger Doug. Thank you very much. Dean, over to you. I think it's interesting to consider here how the Russians are, in fact, firing just these massive fire missions constantly, as though they have an inexhaustible supply of, of munitions. And this raises a couple of questions. One, how much of their war reserves are they drawing down? Because uh, they are actually in a war. Uh, that's why you have those reserves. But uh, given that they transferred forces that uh, used to face China off to help fight here, are they drawing down their capability to sustain a war anywhere else? What does that say about uh, broader NATO security? Uh, can the Baltics, can Poland, for example, breathe a little more easily? 
it also raises questions about money and about uh, maintenance and storage. Um, it would be interesting to know how well Russian munitions, especially dumb shells and rockets, are operating. Uh, what's their dud rate? Uh, because I suspect that the Russians, judging from what we've seen of their tanks and what we know about uh, socialist storage procedures more broadly, a lot of those shells and things were probably made decades ago and probably have not been kept in climate-controlled, careful warehouses with regular samples to make sure everything's working well. Um, and conversely, what is their current production rate? Uh, how many shells are they making to refill those war reserve stocks? And how long can Russia sustain those factories um, given the embargoes, given the financial sanctions, etc.? If the answer is years we should probably be rethinking the effectiveness of those sanctions that we've imposed because I think we all sort of assume that, wow, this is really hurting them. If the answer is yes, but we're still churning out artillery shells and keeping up with uh, usage, I'm not sure what part of the Russian system we're hurting. Back to you. That's a very good observation, and it, it plays heavily into the, uh, the China environment as well. So, Brian, sir, over to you. expect to see a good deal of the war shift away from the east and to the south, the land bridge. Uh, a fighting along uh, from the west around Kherson, and then perhaps a drive south from uh, Zaporizhia towards the Black Sea coast. And there's a great deal of guerrilla activity along that whole land bridge now. Um, I think we could see the Ukrainian forces trying to hit the Russian Black Sea fleet. They have harpoons, they have their Neptunes, they have other anti-ship missiles. We could see them try to drive the Black Sea fleet not only away from the Ukrainian shoreline, but also away from the Crimean Peninsula. Uh, I hope to see, and we have probably seen some of this already, Ukrainian special forces operations inside Russia, not too deep inside there, but uh, there's some been there have been some attacks on storage depots, railroad uh, bridges, and the like in Belarus and in southern Russia, uh, interdicting supplies, of course, and making it clear that the war could get nastier inside Russia. Uh, could also possibly encourage similar operations from. Russian opponents of Mr. Putin, of which there are many, and it's not a huge majority. There have been a number of explosions at uh, Belgorod inside Russia, an ammo dump, rail lines. Uh, were these done by Ukrainians? One was almost certainly done by Ukrainian attack helicopters. Uh, there are other explosions that you would have to think at least some of them are done by Ukrainian special forces. Over. Dr. Dave, over to you. No, I just think the, in some ways we're just pushing the play button every week because I think we're watching something that's like a glacier that may pick up speed, but it's just slowly grinding away in the east. I don't know what's going to happen in the south. I would imagine that the... Like Brian said, there's going to be a temptation at some point for the Ukrainians to do something directly against Russia. I don't know what it would be, but at some point they're going to have to show that they're still in the fight at a significant level. So I just I think it's going to continue like it's going, and we'll, we'll just have to stay tuned. Back to you, Ranger Doug. Thank you. Great round. A uh, couple of things then under the other thoughts. Has anyone detected 
any kinds of strikes by Ukraine into Russia? That was a question I received during the week. I have not heard of anything into Russia. I note that the, the Ukrainians are trying to find the sources of Russian fires, but uh, for some of the fires, since they're launched by aircraft that release on the Russian side of the border, they would have to know where those aircraft were based or shoot them down before they reach Ukrainian airspace. And that seems to be a problem because we may be talking about either low-flying bombers that are difficult to detect or high-flying ones that are hard to hit with current technologies. Anything uh, heard on, on that case, either one? I think this war highlights the unfortunate irrelevancy, if not fatuousness, of so much of academic study of international relations these days. Uh, five years ago, Steven Pinker uh, was the celebrity of the moment, uh, interviewed everywhere from Scientific American to Time magazine, because he was prepared pounding this idea that mankind is finally crossed over. We are now more peaceful. Uh, the number of people who have died in interstate conflicts has dropped precipitously. Uh, we have entered a new moral age. War is no longer acceptable. Um, five years later, we are watching uh, war occurring not in some uh, you know, lesser developed set of countries, but in the heart of Europe. Uh, always threatening to suck in uh, the United States, Western Europe, uh, even China and Japan. Um, the potential for conflict is still there in North Korea uh, between China and Taiwan. But international relations theory went completely in the opposite direction, convinced that we were now somehow going to be more peaceful. And I think that it demonstrates the extent to which too much of our best and brightest, too much of our theories, too much of our academic uh, resources, which has lots of smart people and billions of dollars, uh, gets distracted by the you know, flavor of the minute, not even flavor of the month, uh, kind of ideas that sound wonderful, but are just absolutely ahistorical and most likely to be proven wrong catastrophically, at which point no one is held responsible and no one loses tenure and no one loses their funding. So I think the point Dean made is really important. Uh, you know, IR theory is theory. Uh, there's an old saw about, you know, that works fine in practice, but what about the theory? Uh, we have a place right now where a lot of the theory doesn't explain practice at all. And it's become further and further disconnected from the realities around the world. Pinkert's a, a really good example. Francis Fukuyama at the end of the Cold War, the same thing. But I think, you know, before we throw the baby out with the bathwater, uh, the tendency with things like this is, you know, and this is not the theorists, but the people who study the, the Russians in the area, there's been a lot of pushback about how did they get the Russians so wrong? They can't do anything right. Um, based on work that had been mainly done in the Baltics. I think we need to remember that Ukraine is really large and has a large population that is pushing back. That's not true in the Baltics, where there's less than 7 million people and a very shallow strategic depth to the to the sea. So, you know, I, I was talking to somebody today that's uh, working on this area, and he said, you know, we found out the Russians aren't 10 feet tall, but we need to remember they're not 2 feet tall. They may be about 5'11". Uh, and I think that's really important to keep in mind that we just can't like write them off 
when this is done because they've just shown how bad they are. Uh, they were not prepared for this. I promise you they're going to go back and study and learn just like they did after the first Chechen war and just like they did after Georgia uh, because they are not going quietly in the night, in my view. Back to you, Ranger Doug. Right. I haven't heard any real reports of anything in the last few days, though. I did I did know of the strike at Belgorod that occurred some time ago, and I, I remain concerned that uh, we are bringing in uh, lots of things in an effort to try to back them up. One of the things we've announced is we'll be building silos uh, in the western part of Ukraine, uh, and obviously uh, thinking that that's a humanitarian aspect, that would be to store grain that they can't get out through the Black Sea, but uh, I would think that uh, no matter what we think we're doing as far as helping, wherever we do anything like stockpile grain even, uh, could become a military target for at least uh, Russian missiles. As always tonight, we've stayed away from partisan politics. We've discussed issues only from open source material. Nothing classified, nothing gotten through any work that anyone does, just generated by the same kind of research that you can do. We try to provide the best information that we can. The situation is getting very dire in the world as well as in the fight. There will be changes coming. Right now it seems as if it's held a kind of steady state, but unlike other wars, since this one is so highly controlled by the information environment and the information environment is so influencing on the rest of the world, it's likely that there will be some changes soon. There are reports of large numbers of casualties between 200 and 1,000 Ukrainians a day are reported killed. Russians somewhat less, most of the Ukrainian deaths due to artillery, according to reports. It's not certain how long this can go on. It's not certain whether the Ukrainians are able to come to any kind of new negotiating positions unless they can gain some success either in the north or in the south or both. By the same token, nothing really propels the Russians to want to settle simply because they've now been cut away from most things that they used to depend on. They've developed alliances with those that will support them, and they've received as much support as necessary. Their currency and, and their monetary system appear to be doing fine even in the face of sanctions, and the populace is gradually growing more and more around Putin as opposed to being disaffected by any kind of information acting on them. This is characteristic of the Russian experience. As also we've said on earlier programs, the longer the war goes on, if the Russian populace becomes more and more motivated, and if they can develop additional sources of supply for their weapons and so forth, they, because they have a population of 140 million and a much larger land mass, have the ability to last longer than the Ukrainians with a smaller land mass and a population of around 40 million. Russians generally have a much larger army, and uh, those types of things just as in regular fights in the boxing ring tell the story. We call it the tale of the tape. That's all for this evening. This is Ranger Doug, and of course, I don't need an introduction because I'm only the dealer in this card game. Have a great week. We'll see you next week. Ranger Doug out. Thank you for listening to Veterans Radio Hour. Veterans Broadcast Network, bringing you shows like Veterans Radio Hour, Wounded But Not Broken, No One Left Behind.